Hello and welcome to episode 196 of the Mark and Me podcast. As always, I'm your host Mark. Now joining me on today's episode is the British film director, producer and writer Ben Charles Edwards. This interview includes a lot of talk about how his career came to be. But not only that, we get to focus on his most recent release, Father of Flies. This is an amazing horror that is out now and I urge you all to go and check it out. It's brilliantly written, brilliantly directed and just an overall great movie. So go and do that. And you'll find out more about this film and much more with my interview with Ben Charles Edwards in just a couple of moments time. But before we do, let's touch base and talk about my last episode. I always like to use the intro of every episode of Mark and Me to talk about my previous episode. And on episode 195, I was joined by the actor Neil Maskell. We got to talk all about his amazing career to date. Just the amazing performances that he's given us in The Football Factory, Kill List and his most recent film, Bull. And it was amazing to see so many people on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram go and check this movie out and I've seen some incredible feedback from people and I've really enjoyed reading all the people that have reached out to me and told me just how much they enjoyed this interview. So thank you so much. But today's episode is all about horror. Yes, I'm joined by Ben Charles Edwards and I think the best thing to do right now is to get straight to that interview. So here's me and Ben talking all things film. So Ben, thanks for joining me today on the Mark and Me podcast. No problem. I appreciate the invitation. Thank you. So, Ben, what I'd like to do for the listeners out there, some of them will be tuning in for the first time to discover your work. Tell me about growing up. Can you remember those first films you watched that made you fall in love with cinema? Um, I can. That's a really good question. Um, you know, I can pinpoint my interest in film to two particular occurrences. One of them was going to see Death Becomes Her with my father. That's a um, classic. It's a classic. And you know what? As camp as it is, it's bloody brilliant. Um, and I still remember the excitement of, of genuinely not understanding, because CGI wasn't a big thing then. So no. you genuinely could not understand how Goldie Horn had a hole in her stomach. And I just found it genuinely magical. And I thought, oh, my God, what are the possibilities? What are the capabilities of film? Um, if... If, you know, you, you grew up in cartoons, you grew up in this and that, and I remember sitting there in a crappy little cinema in Woking and thinking, wow, that's really cool. What else could you do? It seemed like a magic trick, you know? It was like being a kid and going to watch a magician show. Goldie Horn's head turning all the way around as well. That was on those scenes. I was like... That, oh, that was Meryl Streep. Oh, Meryl Streep, that's it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then... Um, and then the other one, I was probably really, really young, and... And I had a babysitter called Vivian, this sweet old lady. Um, she was she looked a lot like Mrs. Stark, the character, the old witch from my horror film, Father of Flies. It was based on her, in fact. But I was sat in front of the TV, 1980s, VHS, you know, things on tapes. And um, and she put some Pinocchio for me. And after that, Pinocchio ends, I turn and Vivian's asleep in her chair and I'm like, ah, oh, I should put on another VHS. And there's this really interesting VHS below, which was probably owned by my stepfather. And the cover looked quite intriguing. It was Pasolini's Salo, oh 120 God. Days of Sodom. Jesus I was Christ. probably about six. Right? <laughs> um, so shortly after Pinocchio, I kind of contrasted it with Salo. And, and you know, I think, 
I mean, one, it, it, it terrified me, but Pinocchio terrified me more. Wow. Um, that was really interesting. And I think that that was because, and now I can interpret that as know your audience. And <laughs> Pinocchio is, is created, or, you know, the Disney one was created to, um, to terrify children. And that's certainly what it did. When Pasolini perhaps didn't have a six-year-old boy from Woking in mind. No. So a lot of it went over my head. But I guess it was still an eye-opener. That's incredible. It's a bit of a um, fucked up start at six years old, just something <laughs> like that. I don't really know how you go from that. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, nothing's really shocked me in cinema since. No. <laughs> so at this point, obviously, you're still quite young. Um, you're really interested in that kind of practical effects and seeing how this is all done. Is that the moment you kind of spark that interest to then go and root out other films to then start to see how things are done practically and not all CGI and stuff? Or are you just kind of still a kid enjoying just all these different trips? Yeah, and I still am still a kid enjoying all these different things. Good. I'm not, I, I'm not calculated or probably don't even have enough. I don't think about things that deeply. <laughs> I just yeah. kind of watch what, like a magpie when you see something shiny. Um, I just, I just go for what looks fun or sparks my interest. Um, I do certainly probably search out more horror than anything else Yeah. Um, for various reasons. But other than that, you know, yesterday morning I switched on the TV and I was desperate to watch the Goofy movie. So I sat and put on Disney Plus <laughs> and watched the Goofy movie. And I have no idea why, but it was in my head and I needed to see it. Um, you know, and that's, that's what cinema is. It's a little like music. It does accompany a mood. And sometimes I think you have to be a little bit more, um, you have to go with the flow with it a bit, you know. I think Definitely. we're spoiled with choice sometimes and I end up spending too much time flicking through all these platforms and I never even watch anything. And then before you know it, I think, Christ, I've got to go to bed and I've spent an hour just going through catalogues and that's such a shame. Sometimes, you know, luck of the draw, like back in the day when it was just terrestrial channels, it's how I discovered some of the best films. I remember... Channel 4 playing Bad Boy Bubby in the middle of the night. And it's a film that I would never have considered watching if given the choice. But at midnight, can't sleep, what is there on? Bad Boy Bubby comes on and I thought, my God, like, I, think, I think that's how you start to see a little bit more, it's a little bit more interest in cinema. Sometimes you just go with it. Put on no, I, I, I totally agree. I remember we had Blockbuster Video down the road from us and you'd go down there specifically for one title, you know, hopefully it's the new release, like the faculty or something. You're like, oh, I can't wait to see it. Yeah. You get there and there'd be no new releases because everyone, everyone had took it and you'd be like, oh shit, so you're limited. And yeah. you're like, well, I'll have to get the next thing. And, you know, hopefully, I don't know, it might be something like, I know what you did last summer. You grab the alternative and you get home, but you're forced to watch that. You know, movies now with streaming is just so disposable like oh i'll start watching five minutes oh it's crap on me but you you dedicated you'd make sure you'd watch that from start to finish yeah, yeah. and i, I think that's how i just these classics you know it is and i remember renting out butcher boy as a kid from my local vhs store because i can't remember how how old i was i probably wasn't old enough to watch it and i can't really remember what it was about i did eventually watch it but 1980s horror covers were kind of airbrushed and almost comic effect. Yeah. So it had this appeal to children. And I still think that perhaps that's why I was always attracted to them. But I got, I rented out Butcher Boy, got it home, put it in the machine, 
and it was in fact the wrong VHS. It had Mannequin in it. Oh wow! Um, the Kim Cattrall movie, and I thought, oh Christ, well, I'll watch it anyway. I've spent my one pound fifty. So I, I I watched it and I and I loved it. <laughs> I absolutely loved it. In fact, the first kind of horrorish short film I ever made, I I created the character in it, which was like that Hollywood, you know, the Hollywood character. Yeah, I'm seen film for years. It's it's brilliant filmmaking. <laughs> it's great. Um, I think that's how you create amalgamation of things. You know, don't be set in your ways and just no. just just watch as much as you can. And you started out obviously making a number of shorts. Um, that's how you spent kind of the first 10 years of your filmmaking career. And I take it that's where you were learning in the process while making these. That's the best way to learn, isn't it? To get hands on, be practical and actually do the job. Yeah, I I, I never had a, a hand into the industry. I never knew anybody. I, you know, I was from a small town. I started as a painter. Um and my paintings did arrive for some time. And then I kind of got interested in photography and learned the principles of photography. And then eventually just decided to shoot a, a short film, my first short that I kind of, so I say self-funded, I think I probably just got a couple of mates, a cup of tea and some biscuits and and we shot some stuff, but it was good fun. And, and it got a lot more attention and momentum behind them than I suspect, expected they would. Um, and then from then it led on to, you know, directing or writing and producing commercial content commercials music videos for artists yeah. and labels and then um and then eventually i think 2000 and i made my first short film in 2009 i think or 2008 is that the town that bought 13 i i i had luckily received finance for my first feature right which i then shot in 2014 i think um and then from then on it was it was more of a case of um of still deciding what kind of stories i still don't know what stories i want to tell and just going with the still early days though isn't it isn't it great that you're 10 years into your career even just slightly over now but you've still got so much more ahead of you and you're learning all the time and like you said i think you said was it set the thames on fire was your first feature yeah, yeah first feature and then seven years later we're here talking about father of flies yeah yeah um, um yeah and in fact father of flies set the terms is the first feature father of flies was the second but because of the time that it took me to finish father of flies in post i had in that time turned my my time far more towards producing and produced for other movies features for other people and companies in that time so this summer i'll go on to shoot my third feature as a director but I think it'd be my eighth or ninth feature, yeah. Um, in general, but you know, it's it, yeah, it's it's strange how these films overlap one another, and and um, you know, as I say, what the place I'm at now, as to where I was when I wrote Father of Flies, seems like a lifetime ago, but it's only just coming out next week. Yeah. So some um, it is strange. And what was your biggest learning curve on this film? Obviously, it was your, it's your second. So you've done that first feature. You've got it down. The foundations are laid. You've made your mark. But then you've got to obviously come back and you were involved in the writing with this with, uh, was it Nadia Doherty? Yes. Yeah, she, she um, yeah, yeah. And you obviously put this out there. Now we're just about to see it, you know, a week away from seeing it. But how did it kind of 
to prepare yourself once you've made that first feature and then to kind of top it for the next level? I think to, to you never know if you're going to, at that time, I never knew if I was going to make another feature after Set the Thames. You know, you feel kind of lucky that you managed to get some money together or producers to believe in you and blah, blah, blah. So I set out to, before I engaged with the co-writer to kind of fill in some of the blanks, I set out to make something that was the most contained, simple idea I could possibly come up with. So I thought, because I don't believe that complexity in that sense often translates as a better film. Um, and nonetheless, I needed to make a second feature if I was going to continue and learn more. But I think in regards to your actual question, the, the lesson was probably more of a confirmation for me, which is I'm a kind of a director that feels that I could produce my own work and do. And if I can't figure it out as a production, then I don't expect anyone else to do it. I don't expect anyone else to be able to put it together on a price or a value that perhaps I could. So I think the lesson is don't try to don't try to bite off more than you can choose that I did with Set the Thames. It was a far too big idea. Yeah. Um, when Father Flies was in fact far more contained. So it's slow and small building blocks and don't run before you can walk. And how does it feel then going into your third film? Are you now starting to jog a little bit? <laughs> Every project <laughs> has different um, different <laughs> problems. Um, this one was financed before I'd even written the script. Wow. So I'm now like, oh my God, I'm going to make it either way and I might have a rubbish script, which is obviously the worst scenario you can be in. So the clock's ticking now. We're on the treadmill and um, I mean, we've got we've got the script together and I've worked with some really good writers and it's and it's looking really, really promising, but it's not quite there yet. And you can never make a great film from a mediocre script. And I'm not saying it's currently mediocre, but it definitely needs more work. So, you know, I, 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 my position at Goldfinch, I looked through as a, as a producer, I looked through hundreds of scripts a year from other filmmakers that have obviously spent years tweaking them and massaging them perfectly. And there's me thinking, my God, I'm going to shoot as a director a third movie in a month or two and I don't even know what the script is. Is, so, that, not, is that not quite terrifying? I'd be like, oh my God, you know, you've been quite comfortable. This is bliss, Mark. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll, we, we'll get there. It's just, you know, we, I've got a session tomorrow to uh, with with the writers. You say it's through Goldfinch. Goldfinch are one of the co-producers on this project. I know Phil McKenzie. Right, so Phil, so I I head up production at Goldfinch. Oh, lovely. Um, yeah, so I run their production arm, um, and Phil is COO. Great guy. Um, it's a small world. A small world. Yeah, yeah. He's a good person to work with, Phil. Um, I've been yeah, working with uh, Phil. I've been working with Tom Payton. I was in one of his films. Um, do you know Tom Payton, the director? I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So um, when I got into working with Goldfinch a little bit, just through promoting some of their stuff and working with Shane Ward and stuff. So. All right. Small world. Yeah. It's a very small world. Um, yeah. So what I was going to ask is, and I ask this to everyone that comes on the podcast, is there will be people listening today like yourself that 
are getting into the industry and making films or wanting to, you know, make films. And you, you made a point today that you didn't, you know, you weren't handed this chance to become a filmmaker and you had to work for it. What advice do you give for people that want to go down that route of starting to make films? You did shorts, you did music videos, but it's a real tough industry, isn't it, to get a name for yourself in? It is. And I guess you can be really lucky and write a good script and have it picked up by by um, by a producer or have have direct and quick route to um, finance. But I think that that really is just luck of the draw. And you're a gambling person if you're going to hedge your bets on that. I think the other route, which is a more sensible route, is the slow building blocks. I think we're leaving, what am I trying to say? We're leaving a time, I think, where a director is just the director and I possibly can't do anything else but just direct on it and focus on my vision. So, well, sure, yeah, but I think you also need to, um, you need to have a grasp across the whole of filmmaking. That includes knowing where your budget lies, how you could potentially structure the finance of the film. It's, filmmaking is probably the only industry where one requires so much finance to get it done, yet they have absolutely no clue where the money's coming from, how they're structuring it. <laughs> and, and it seems insane. It's like, I'm trying to think of an equivalent. It's like an architect saying, I've created this wonderful masterpiece. And the, and the, the investors saying, well, okay, but it, it needs to function. It needs to make some money. It's, yeah. show, it's show business. It's not show art. And, and I'm still astonished when I speak to some directors and they have so little understanding on film finance and budgeting. And I think those times, those days for many of us are limited. I think the best thing you can do now is get your head around film finance even if that's a case of how you could potentially crowdfund your short film and get together a couple of grand yeah it's enough if you believe in the project i really think it's enough no you may not be able to have a, a sony venice for 10 days on hire to shoot your wonderful vision but perhaps you could just shoot it on your iphone i mean a great vision is a great vision it really is yeah i, mean, I look across yeah. other people's work I don't think for a second of the technical, um, the, the quality sometimes. Sure, if it's particularly bad and they've paid no note to it, then you think, Christ. But, you know, I've seen some stuff last week. Somebody said, a filmmaker sent a sizzle through that they had clearly made on their iPhone. And I thought, oh my God, you've cut this together so well. The shots, the compositions are really interesting. It's cut together really well. It's with some amazing music. And more importantly, I genuinely wanted to see the feature app, the feature version of it. So immediately that's like, that's, that's a good foot in the door. That's a really exciting way to, to work. Don't limit yourself and think, well, I can't do anything. My hands are tied because I don't have a million quid to make my film. Where there's a will, there's a way. And there is a way. I love it. I think that's awesome advice. And people don't always look at that kind of bigger picture. They look at just trying to get the product done instead of actually what you're going to do once you've got the product. And it's your journey as a filmmaker. You know, you, you, you don't read the good reviews, you don't read the bad reviews, they're irrelevant. Other people's voices in the room are irrelevant at that moment. It's your journey. If you're there to tell a story and you're there to excite your own imagination and hopefully some other people within the audience, that's what you need to focus on. Um, 
don't mark yourself up to other people and what you should be doing nobody can really tell you that it it is one's own journey in this and you'll be doing it at a different time to your peers and as i say sometimes you're ahead sometimes you're behind but it kind of doesn't matter because what's it all matter anyway it's so true my last question for you today and i ask this to everybody i've done nearly 200 episodes and every single person that's been on the podcast has been asked it what I do on the podcast is the outro piece of music can be chosen by the guest that's been on that day. So literally any piece of music by any band, any artist, but I'm going to put you on the spot. So the interview is all wrapped up. We've polished it. We've edited it. It's gone out there, but you get to choose that final piece of music that plays that something special to you. It might be your favorite song, a song that just has some really good meaning, but what's the song that came to your heart and soul when I asked the question? Mark, that's the easiest question I've ever been asked. Wow. It's, it's Pink Elephants on Parade from Dumbo. <laughs> Look perfectly Look fitting. Pink Elephants on Parade, here they are. And it's in a nice circle from where it all started. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> that's amazing, Ben. Our time is up. It's two o'clock. And look at that for timing. Perfect. Look at that. That is good timing. I believe our paths will cross again, especially with Goldfinch and other stuff we've talked about today. But I just want to say a massive thank you for your time. Uh, I can't wait for people to see the film. Obviously, next week's a big week for you. And I just want to say a massive thanks for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thanks for um, thanks for your time, Mark. It's very good. So there it is. There's my interview with me and Ben Charles Edwards, a great guy. And hey, as you heard on the interview, we have a lot of connections. So it's a very small world out there. And hopefully we'll get Ben back for more in the very near future. I hope you've really enjoyed today's interview and you now go and check out his work. As I said, you should go and check out his most recent film, Father of Flies. It's a brilliant horror and I think you'll absolutely love it. And if you do, hook me up on all my Twitter, Facebook and Instagram and let me know your thoughts. To links to all of those social media sites, go on markandme.com. On there you can access my Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and even my email address. And I take pride in replying personally to each and every single message that I ever receive. And I've seen a lot of new people jumping on board recently. So thank you, I hope you stick around and I really appreciate all the support. If you'd like to support Mark and me on a further level, I do have a Patreon account set up. This is my way of funding the podcast and allowing me to go out there and record more and more interviews, which means more and more episodes for you guys at home. I can only do this with the support from you guys out there. And honestly, every penny that you support me goes right back into the podcast. But as a way of saying thank you for supporting this podcast, what I do is I give some exclusive prizes each and every month to you guys at home. So thanks to the amazing guys at Richer Sounds, I have some headphones, I have Sonos, I have speakers, I have all various different prizes, and each and every month I'll be giving those away. So stay tuned on all my social media to find out the links and ways you can enter the competitions via my Patreon. I'll be back in only a few days with a brand new episode. I don't want to slow down anytime soon and loads of stuff is coming up. And hey, we're approaching the big 200 soon. I can't wait to share with you the guests I've got coming up. So stay tuned, look after yourself and I'll speak to you all very soon.
out, look out. Meet elephants on parade, here they come, hippity-hoppity, they're here, and there are big elephants everywhere. Look out, look out, they're walking around the bed, on the head, clippity-cloppity, parade, in brave big elephants on parade. What'll I do? What'll I do? What an unusual view! I can stand the sight of worms and look at microscopic germs, but technicolor pachyderms is really too much for me. <laughs> I am not the type to faint when things are odd or things are quaint, but seeing things you know that ain't can certainly give you an awful fright. What a sight! Chase them away! Chase them away! I'm afraid! Need your eight big elephants on parade! Pink elephants! Pink elephants! Pink elephants! Pink elephants.